you know, we've moved away in, in the unit I'm in and, and the special operations world in some areas, instead of saying fitness tests, it's readiness evaluation. Do you have the prerequisite skills and capacity to do commando things? And so there's a buy-in to where you have to pass a minimum standard. And after that, it's, it's extended scale. But those movement demands and those time domains are based off of real-world mission analysis of 22 years now for us. And that's where I think it's, it's hard to do at scale, but that's what we went with. Welcome to the Mops and Mo's podcast with Alex and Drew. Drew, who do we have today? Chris McNamara, friend of the podcast, friend of the two of us. He's 20 years in Army Special Operations, and he is the owner of Evolution Athletics, if you've been around Fort Bragg, North Carolina at all. Uh, he's got a background in emergency medicine, clinical health science, and sports performance with a lot of practical experience gained from coaching and competing across a broad spectrum of competitive sports. Currently, as part of his work at Evolution, he coaches dozens of athletes from around the entire military, obviously with a heavy emphasis on special operations, including, which is interesting, some of the first women to earn their Ranger tabs and Green Berets. So that's a, that's a pretty condensed version of his bio, but the bottom line here is that it's hard to find somebody who's got more combined expertise in tactical and in fitness. And what's interesting, and we want to do a lot more of these types of episodes where it's not, we're not interviewing Chris necessarily. We've brought him on to talk about assessments and sort of PT tests and his thoughts on those and sort of a roundtable discussion with us. So hopefully you learn a thing or two and enjoy. And it's incredibly timely because I literally, Alex, you just texted me that article I'll post it, uh, if you guys have seen this, but um, what was the title of it, Alex? I would, I would check, but I had to turn my phone off because it was like buzzing too much because lawmakers, lawmakers order army to create separate fitness standard for combat specialties. Mm. That was this today's Yeah, that was this afternoon. Nice. Super timely. I didn't even know that. I didn't even know that was a thing. I didn't either until they texted me. But so, how, Alex, you know the answer to this, maybe. How long have they been working on the ACFT? That depends on what you consider the start of working on the ACFT. I know. So, one of my favorite finds was when I was at the physical fitness school, there's like this filing cabinet full of like really old, like essentially historic documents. And one of the documents was like several studies of how stupid the sit up was. Like not only that it like wasn't very good at predicting anything, but also that it was like actively harmful as well. And it was from the nineties. Like it was, this is like not new stuff that we've been trying to change. It's just so hard. I heard the line. I don't know who I heard it from. It was yesterday at some point, but somebody said the two things soldiers hate the most are the way things are and change. So I have some context on that. I know you said that. Just Chris. <laughs> Perfect. Let's go. Well, no, I, I know who said that specifically was, was General Braga. Um, and the way he said it was, uh, there's only, you know, there's two things soldiers hate, which is status quo. And the only thing they hate more than status quo is change. Yeah. So he was talking about uh, changing some things within the SF pipeline. So. Yeah. yeah. So we've, we've definitely been trying to change the test in some capacity for decades. So. 
So decades of work and we finally, I mean, they, they went live with it this year ish. And now as of today, which is the 15th of June, <laughs> they're going to change it again. <laughs> and if you, if you read the article carefully, like if you get two thirds of the way through, you'll see a line that said like multiple lawmakers during the session suggested scrapping the test entirely. <laughs> That's an interesting point because I've had this conversation. This may have come up actually, Alex, when we talked to Nate, but if you even need a test, and I'm interested in your thoughts on this, Chris, because I know in different worlds, different tests do different things, but like if the, I've heard it through the lens of technology and the argument basically was that if you have technology that's good enough to give you like real-time information on, you know, performance, which is a whole different conversation, but if you have that in place, you don't necessarily need some arbitrary test. We do. Yeah. I'll tell you, Space Force is trying to go that direction because they get to start from the beginning and they can write whatever they want. Yeah, you, you beat me to it. They get wearables, right? And that's that's their metric is that they're just active. Because then you could ask, what does the test elicit to, to Alex's point earlier? Like if the test isn't going to elicit either a trait, an attribute or a competency that is transferable to the job, why are we doing it, right? And so that's where I think to Air Force's or uh, Space Force's point, like if you got the wearables and activity and health and wellness is your metric because there's no transferable thing to a Space Force mission demand. All right, I think there's merit to that conversation. It's, it's frustrating because like, so what Space Force has is a blank slate, right? That's the opportunity they have is that they're starting fresh and we're in this process where like 30 different regulations all reference the PT test and everything. And I wish, so we've, we've demonstrated an ability to be creative on like the elements of the test. And we've absolutely refused to have a conversation about just changing policy instead. And I think there's so much more to be done with updating policy than there is to be done with like tweaks to test events and scoring scales and stuff. Yeah, and I think that's where, Drew, I don't know if we've talked about it um, in person before, but I, I think one of the things I did like about the ACFT change, and, and Alex, I think you posted about this, is like it was going to change or is going to change armor tra Army training philosophy and culture and other things. Hopefully for the better, I'm all for it. Um, but what I don't see and what I would love to see more, maybe it's because I'm not in, in a unit that, that prioritizes that too much, uh, just different demands and different tests in general um, is creating buy-in in the staff, right? The H2F staff and some other things. So, I mean, I, my view on some things a little different, maybe we'll get to that later, but like a test or a smart test or battery of tests could actually create utilization for coaches, create, you know, utilization for other people, as opposed to just training for a test. Well, I think about it and coming into this, I'm kind of coming at this question of like the ideal assessment from two lines of thought. One is as a coach. And when I think of an assessment with that hat on, I'm thinking of like, you know, a battery of, of things that you'll do that I can then build a training program off of, which to me, I mean, there's some crossover, but the second hat is from like a policymaker standpoint, which is, is this unit of measurement being the soldier capable of doing the thing, which in this case would be combat. And like I said, there's crossover, but from a coaching standpoint, I think, especially with when I was with the air force and I, you know, kind of special operations as a whole, you can't really replicate combat in a gym. So I started to go after, and we talked about this when we had Evan on like going after sort of a physiology approach where if I can get a sense of, of an athlete's physiology, 
that should give me a, a pretty robust picture that I can then train off of. The assumption being, if I have his physiology robust enough, then whatever happens in combat, he can he can withstand. So it's kind of too. I don't know. I get the I get the arguments being made about the ACOT. We got to check a certain number of boxes. It has to appeal to different levels of government. Yada yada yada. And then this counter argument, or maybe separate argument, of like, okay, but what do these metrics actually give me that I can then train? To your point, I think about the staff buy-in piece because some of the components that we're testing, you can't necessarily take that and program off of it. You just get a kind of number that is arbitrary. Should we lay the Goodhart's Law Foundation for anybody who? I knew it was going to come up at some point. Goodhart's Law, which, if you don't know, basically means that what anything that I'm probably going to phrase this. You have to. You can't. Anything that you basically anything that as soon as you measure it you defeat the purpose of doing the thing in the first place. Yeah. So the, the application to PT tests here that I think is important if you're going to have any kind of conversation about assessments is that as soon as the thing you're testing becomes the goal, it stops testing what you thought you were looking for in the first place. Right. And the example I love using, cause it's super simple and it applies to what we do is that you can find a ton of articles about the fact that pushups are predictive of all cause mortality. The number of pushups you can do predicts how long you're gonna live. And that's true if you're not somebody who practices pushups specifically, because in that case, they're gonna be a decent assessment of your strength to weight ratio and just how generally fit you are, your body mass index and all sorts of things that tie into your overall health. But as soon as you start doing pushups every day, you, you break it because it's no longer testing all of those things, it's testing how much do you practice pushups. And, and that is kind of the foundational, if we're training to a test, we will ruin, no matter what the test is, we will ruin its ability to predict the things it was designed for. Yeah, I think that's, uh, you know, I don't remember who said it, you know, recently I heard a, a, a podcast with Dr. Skiba, the guy who helped with like the Breaking 2 project with Nike and everything else. And he was, he was talking about the difference between, you know, assessments and tests. And I think I've heard Evan, maybe it was on you guys' podcast, talk about those things. You know, if you, for a test, you're you're kind of measuring certain things, and you can train to be better at the test. Versus an assessment of, of physiology, biomechanics, pick a metric um, that can inform better programming. I think there's a. You know, I come from the medical world. That's my background for the last 20 years, and and we do that right. So in the way that we assess a patient in our SOAP plan, there is a you know objective testing phase, um, depending on symptoms and, and chief complaint. But then there is an assessment based off the data points you get from all of the tests. And when you, when you put all those things together in your assessment, that's the plan or the program you make. So I think there's validity in having some known tests. Um, and specifically, if we're talking at scale and you're talking uh, people that have to have a day job that is not fitness, i.e. commanders um, and senior enlisted advisors, just to, to look at, I'll say, one, readiness and two, performance, which I think are two different things. But, you know, I think if we're backwards planning from those things, there's value in some known tests. I just don't know if we're there with the ACFT. Do you think, though, that you can kind of to the earlier point about um, readiness, I suppose, using gym based metrics? Because that's largely what I think people think of when they think of a test is like something you can do in a gym. And for me, at least on the strength coach side, I saw time and time again, guys would do whatever test I put up on the whiteboard, you know, whatever metric I, th I think of like Jim Jones days where it's like, you know, a 2k row in seven minutes and a double body with deadlift or whatever. And there were guys that couldn't hit those metrics, but in the after action from a deployment, like they still kicked ass. So 
from like a quote unquote sports specific standpoint, they were fine. Did my test, did they need to do any of the things I made up or was I just throwing stuff on the wall? I mean, that's where it's, for me, it becomes hard to, to create something that provides me anything other than a box to check. I have a hard time, I guess, putting it on paper of like, what is this actually giving me aside from my own satisfaction of saying that I'm doing a test? Yeah, and I'll, I'll tell you from kind of an end user for a while, switch to practitioner, like, you know, I've got 20 plus years in the army wrapping up now and 14 deployments. And each one of those was different in physical demands, right? From 10K offset walk-ins to even get to target to do your job with 60 pounds of kit. And then you go to in and out of target on helicopters, sub 20 minutes. Um, and so what I'll tell you is just across the military, I've seen that now. If we're if we're being honest, a lot of tests are written for the coaches, right? A lot of a lot of things are written for spreadsheets and other things, right? But it does drive programming, and 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 when cross validated with physiology metrics, I think we're in a good spot. But you know, I think I'll, I'll give you my theory here. Um, I think a better way to approach these things, this might be sacrilege in some communities, is a is a CrossFit open model where you know movement demands and you know. Uh, other things and people like Alex or people like you are putting out a test at the beginning of the month, a test. Um, and then they have to the end of the month to complete it. And now it's a readiness function, right? So it's commando tasks, commando challenges. Alex can put his leg tucks in there if he wants. Um, and then <laughs> they have the rest of the month to get with the strength staff and develop technique and skill. And then there's bands of performance within there. And then at the next month, you pick another domain, another uh, fitness skill or whatever. Now we're getting things that are more usable metrics, also shaped by commanders or maneuver force elements based on their job, right? A tanker demand is different than an infantry demand versus an aviator. And so that way we have a little bit of both. Would that ever buy off? Absolutely not. I don't think so. Uh, we can't sell that. But uh, I've seen it done in some you know, special operations unit. And, and then what it does is it without trying, you're getting these guys to periodize based on time of year without saying it, right? Like they come from a post-deployment cycle and you may put something that's a little more aerobic and a little bit more, uh, I'll say, movement quality focused. Um, and then as you get closer to a thing, you start to add kit, you add um, time domains and movement demands that might be seen in their job. So how would you, because I like that train of thought, but immediately I think of like, you know, Congress. So if everyone you couldn't do it i'm telling you you couldn't do it but, 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 i've had this conversation with a bunch of people like kind of the the simplest version of it i can think of that like kind of gets after that is that there would be like a menu of 20 test events that are authorized and that when the test rolls around the commander picks five and like that's that's the closest i feel like i could get but like i can immediately imagine the like the jag and ig related challenges where the soldier like fails on that and says like but if the commander had picked though like the commander was targeting me by picking that event because he knew i would fail that one so we have to use these other five and test again and now i'm fine it's, it's yeah and, and where i'm stealing that from is is you know an old special operations tradition called you know black book standard and so what that was is a series of shooting drills um that you were expected to know and do and and at any given time get 80 percent on 80 percent of the, the tests any given time drop of a hat do it um so they were known you could practice them but if you did you'd have to spend all of your time practicing all of the tests and then commander's discretion was i'm going to pick these uh certain events and we'll test them on the assumption of an alert cycle and then you know you were banded uh red green or yellow like red uh, below average or failing 
Um, but for us, a lot of times it wasn't failing, it was just below average. Um, and yellow was average and green was above. And, and so it was in there. And now what I'll tell to, to what Alex was saying, you know, like a lot of that also was, you know, sometimes people just couldn't get to those ranges or couldn't do those other things. So there's some logistics. And I think that scale and for the army and adding fitness stuff, and it would be hard. Do you think to kind of put you on the spot, Chris, so 14 deployments, if you had to pick, we'll start easy. If you had to pick three events that you think would encompass your ability to be successful on all of those 14 deployments, do you think you could do that? This is just out of my own curiosity. Mm, that's, that's tough. And I would say yes and no. If we're talking movement patterns, maybe. But when we start to add in, you know, speed, power, uh, weighted things, I don't know. So really, if you want me to get into it, a weighted upper body pull of some sort, and I'm going to break tradition here from a pull up and say a rope climb. Uh, there's, there's fast roping and there's building climbing and all sorts of other things. And, and I think every commando or soldier should be able to climb a rope, maybe not a pull up, but you can use legs. On, and if you have a good technical rope climb, you could do it. Locomotion, and I don't mean a five mile run. And I also don't mean pure all out sprints. In combat, you move as fast as you effectively can engage, right? And if I'm moving a 10K that infill, I need to be able to get to target and have the bandwidth mentally to have precision fires and to think critically under duress. So I'm not ever going to go near red line unless, unless the situation depends. So I'd say, you know, movement, locomotion, whatever. And then the last thing, it, it's... I mean, I'm a, I, I like squatting. So I would say so just from, just from, from some of the, the demands on the lower body that have been placed upon us and loading the spine that way. And, and as you look at me now, as an older guy, um, there are a lot of issues with people who spent years under load. And I would say arguably from a bracing and diaphragmatic function piece, we're not able to do that without hurting themselves. So I don't mean max effort squat either. Cause here's what I'll tell you. I've never done a two mile run into or off of a target but I have done a 400 meter sprint off of a helicopter to a door to do that. And then, and then done some stuff. I've also never done a max effort lift on target. So, you know, if I'm being an honest broker, I think the, the spectrum of fitness can go those places depending on the athlete, but I don't think you need them to go on target. See, you say that, but I've seen you squat a lot. I've also like seen squatting, you, man. I've also <laughs> seen you tweak your knee running. And I thought <laughs> we were going to lose you. And then you reappeared 10 miles later. It was, it was incredible. Gotcha. Set a 15 minute PR and a half marathon there. Yeah. <laughs> Tore my PCL and meniscus. I thought right. Chris was dead. Yeah. It's funny you say those because I kind of in discussions with the guys that I work with, with strength coaches, trying to come up with like the most minimum effective dose of a PT test you could. We went with, and we didn't implement, well, we did a little bit, but we went with a run piece, pull-ups and a deadlift. And that was it. And I think from those three things, because again, I'm, I'm of the belief that if we look at like the ACFT, for example, you could narrow a lot of those events down just by virtue of the fact that if you as a, as a human can deadlift X amount, you could probably safely assume that they could complete a shuttle run, for example. Okay, cool. So we could take the shuttle run out, that kind of logic. But with like three events, like you said, or like what I'm talking about, it's enough to program off of it's easy enough to train for, but I think it does give you enough information to say, Hey, you're probably good. If shit hits the fan or you're probably not. Yeah, I, I agree. And, and I listen to you guys podcast with Nate Palin. I don't know the guy, but when he was saying like, there's some human functions that, that 
soldiers should be able to do that arguably we can't that that's a different discussion but i think those things are all very good and so like from equipment demands because i know i've got a bunch of guys uh, that i work with from all across the country and some of them just don't have equipment right so you say a rope climb some people just don't have that uh, but a pull-up bar um a place to do a deadlift and a place to move are good and here's where i think um a lot of these soldiers push back on acft and other things is what they see in their daily life of a tanker an aviation person or in the special operations realm they can do most of their job tasks fairly easily and they've never been I'll say stressed in those areas, um, quantifiably, and I'm not talking about just stress events or selection events, but a lot of them have external training goals that don't match their job demands. And so there's a lot of pushback on that from the soldier. I think it's hard. This, this comes back to the conversation we have with Nate a little bit, because a lot of the, the baseline, like, are you fit enough to be an effective soldier requirements are just kind of things I wish most healthy adults were capable of. And we, we get into this like weird sports specificity conversation of like what your version of combat is likely to consist of. And I just like those conversations can go all sorts of different directions and people can talk about what their job does and does not consist of and all sorts of things. But like at the end of the day, I just want like a healthy functional adult human. And I think it like, a healthy adult should be able to drag another human and should be able to like maintain a low level of work for half an hour or an hour or something without becoming a casualty. Like these, these are things that like don't require a conversation about like the nuances of what combat consists of. They're just like, what should a healthy human be able to do? But I guess that's too much to ask lately. And well, you see a lot of like, especially the ACFT again, to use that as an example, like you can go to the website and they've tied and I, I know why they do this. And I saw this happen with the air force, but they'll tie every single event to like a combat task and some of them. Okay, cool. Like the deadlift litter carry is one that always comes up, but to your point, I almost wonder if it's like, are we doing that? Cause it makes sense. Or are we doing that to cover ourselves? because we don't think people can do this thing and we want to be able to protect it and say, well, the reason why we're asking you to is because it looks like the thing that you do when you're at war. Well, that's, since we're talking about assessments, it's, it's good to define some terms, right? We're talking about the difference between construct validity and face validity, right? So construct validity is do the assessed events predict performance on the thing they're supposed to predict for and then face validity is, does an observer looking at it think it's legitimate, which is like not the most scientific thing, but is a thing that matters in the game of assessments. So you have to kind of address both. And that's what that is. Yeah. And I think, you know, like as I get older, both in the military and in life, like I never thought I would have said this as a young, you know, 22 year old ranger when we were first kind of building out the ranger athlete warrior program. I think a bigger concern and a bigger selling point for anything that the army does with, with fitness and assessments and everything else is the amount of people that are combat ineffective due to obesity and other things, right? We're, we're so focused on Friday night light stats and, and big numbers and tests because a lot of us are approaching it from a coaching standpoint, but how many of those people, you know, I forget how many BCTs are just combat ineffective right now to those health and, and injury things. And so to your point, Alex, like, yeah, I think some of that is we want to see certain metrics and everything else. And we can quantify performance, right? Everybody wants predictive analytics of performance. But we've got these other things from just a readiness and health health problem um, that I don't know if, if there is an assessment that will help with some of those things. But back to what I was saying earlier, like, 
I want to see a bigger drive, a, a systemic drive towards using a staff like a nutritionist, you know, RDN, whatever you have available using your coaches and things. And that's a big concern for me. Well, it brings up another question about all this, which is tests tend to be purely physical. And should there be a conversation around wrapping in as some of these go, no go criteria, a cognitive component, a nutritional component, can you test for that in a timely fashion? Can you test for that industrially? Like if we, if we added a cognitive component to the ACFT, for example, like, is that even in the realm of possible, even though we all know it makes sense because we've seen, we've all seen guys that can crush things physically, but like mentally, they're probably not, they shouldn't go down range. Yeah. You know, uh, we worked with a guy um, called Preston Klein out of Wharton, Wharton Business School. He goes, he runs something called the Mission Critical Teams Institute. And so he deals with mission critical teams from special operations folks to trauma teams who deal with, you know, rapid emerging problem sets and in, in where lives are on the line. And so he talks about this tacit knowledge transfer problem. So you've got the, the cadre of certain courses, right? Or the end user and say like an infantry line company who can define a problem, like you're saying, be tired and shoot well, be tired and shoot safely, you know, maneuver in a squad live fire safely. And you've got academia. So like you've got the cadre and you've got the community. And there's a hard problem of saying, these are the demands I need in combat. And then there's hard people who want to make a test to elicit those things. I don't know if we'll ever get there for real because combat is so dynamic. You can't script it. Um, it's, it's dynamic system stuff where I input a variable, it changes what the enemy does. And so I don't know if we'll ever get a test that does that, but that's where I'm back to the readiness. You know, we've moved away in, in the unit I'm in and, and the special operations world in some areas, instead of saying fitness tests, it's readiness evaluation. Do you have the prerequisite skills and capacity to do commando things. And so there's a buy-in to where you have to pass a minimum standard. And after that, it's, it's extended scale. But those movement demands and those time domains are based off of real-world mission analysis of 22 years now for us. And that's where I think it's, it's hard to do at scale, but that's what we went with. What do you think, like with units like yours, what do you think allows... I know the answer is probably pretty obvious, but what allows for those decisions to be made and implemented that the big army or big Navy or big military is not, that shies away from basically. Um, okay. So I'll say that first is from a organizational and cultural standpoint, it's bottoms up, right? So the, the person going in the door drives what the organization is doing. I don't know if you can scale that quite honestly. And, and then the second thing is maturity of the individual, uh, you know, entry-level positions in my organization, like E7s, 30% of the Army Z9s uh, work here. And so that's where like, it's different. And, and the analogy I've heard before is to turn a ship like the Army, you know, if you just turn the rudder, it would rip the rudder off the ship. My organization is much like a trim tab where the trim tab turns first and then it turns the rudder. So we are more rapidly pivotable. And then what I'll also say is because we're so, so small, and because immediate feedback is, is readily available in terms of success or failure on a target, lives lost, or at least people hurt on a target, we can pivot quickly based off of real world information. Um, it's not perfect, but I think part of that is, is you just look at the you know, life cycle and, and deployment cycle of a typical army unit, you know, they don't have that. And, and again, all of ours is combat driven and a leadership that'll listen. So I think there's, there's some value in that. I think the other 
other piece of why we can do that and why we can shift that is um, oversight and authorities are pushed down to a lower level, you know? Uh, so that's a different domain, right? Like I understand you have to show readiness. You have to show these other things to so the powers that be. You really do. We have to do it too. Um, but when the decision-making and the, um, I'll say authorities are pushed lower, you can get away with some of that because they're able to see those things faster. One thing that's been rattling around my brain a lot, because I think you're right in that for the broader tactical community or the conventional military or whatever you want to talk about, there will always be like challenges of scale where you can't get away with things that other communities can, can pull off because of being smaller and more agile. But we have we have some assumptions that seem to be acceptable in the conversation. And one of those is that it's a zero sum game where like any fitter you need soldiers to be, they will become like commensurately less tactically competent or technically competent, like as though they are achieving 100% of their potential with the time that they have. And they were going to have to sacrifice some super critical job training to get 5% more physically fit. And it's, it's frustrating because that's obviously not true. Like if you've been to, to any conventional military organization, you know, they're not maximizing the time they have. And there's tons of information out there about kind of the, the mutually beneficial outcomes of getting fitter and healthier, right? Like even if your job is completely technical, it's entirely sedentary and you work at a computer. If you get more aerobically fit and a little bit healthier, you're going to be able to think more quickly and adapt to stress better. And all of these things that help you perform at the technical components of your job. So like, I, I just get really frustrated that the debate seems to have accepted this zero sum fallacy about like fitness comes at this huge cost to everything else. Yeah. I think you're seeing a lot of these other organizations, both in, in the military and in, in, in the corporate world who, who truly value their humans. Right. So that's one thing they will balance them out. Right. They know a coder at Google will be better at his job if he's a healthier individual. And we apply that same concept, right? And, and I think that's where we need to make a shift in terms of an assessment for job function is different from an assessment for health and longevity. And we're talking about preserving human capital here, right? Like keeping people in the job longer at a higher level, especially because as, as we start to lose some of this combat experience over these years, we can't buy that. You literally can't put a number on getting that experience. And so if you shift the paradigm of the command team of saying health and longevity, and 300 PT scores, 600 ACFT scores aren't as important of a metric, good hearts law, right? Like if, if my PT average, my ACFT average for a company is the metric I'm using for success, there's a trap built into that. And so that's where I think, um, you know, for us, it's cross-validated by job, for, job performance with readiness metrics. And the reason we're so big on that readiness piece is it doesn't imply that you can win. Like it doesn't imply that you can, you know, um, get a 6,000 ACFT score and you're the fittest. In fact, for us, it's okay. You are ready to do your job. No one's going to question that. And then it's a balance of technical skill set, right? Because there is a massive piece of tactical athletes, if you want to use that term, that is technical. And you're really building a physical skill set that allows them to express that in dynamic situations. So we use the bandwidth model, right? So if, if I give you the physical bandwidth to do a, a very dynamic movement, maybe under fatigue, but have the decision-making ability left, bandwidth left to take a highly precise shot on the right target, then that's success. 
Um, and so anything more than that, arguably, is taking away from technical things to, to flip it. Um, you know, the other way, Alex, is like, okay, you're in the gym six hours a day to win the ACFT, but your marksmanship is suffering and, and decision-making and all these other things. And we see it, right? There's a tipping point with almost being too fit. They're also injury-prone, especially longevity. As you're old like me, uh, those miles add up, right? I think we've, we've already referenced Nate like two or three times in this episode. He'll love it. But his version of that is that we like the human performance team's job is to make sure that for the soldier, the operator, the tactical professional, whoever it is, that the hardware is good enough that the software doesn't crash the system. Right. We don't need to get the best hardware in the game. We need to make sure the hardware is good enough that the software can do its job and the software being those technical skills. And it's just a hard conversation to have. Well, as I'm sitting here, I'm starting to fall more in love with the idea of, and I know there's obviously a ton of pitfalls with this, but if, if you were able to create kind of a mission essentials task list, but the physical piece of that, that was just a living document that commander. So you wouldn't necessarily, and again, I, I realize I'm living in la la land here, you wouldn't necessarily have a PT test that you had to take, you know, every six months or whatever, but every soldier would be aware of the fact that they had to be able to pass any of these things at any given point. Same as we do with like body composition, right? If, if, a, if someone assumes that a soldier is not going to pass height weight at any point, they can pop them with that and they can do high weight. So you could are, you could kind of make the case that why don't we take that a step further into the physical world? The argument should be on what movements, maybe movements should be included on that list broad enough to where you don't run into this good hearts law scenario of just training for these like five events, but specific enough to where if at any given point, the commander says, Hey, you, I don't think you're proficient enough at these things. Here's your test. I think again, not realistic. I see the, the holes in it and I see the congressional folks like freaking out because you know, the legalities of it, but it'd be a cool concept to trial. Maybe it's also, it's also better for the coaches, right? right because exactly. like you, if you have to pause your programming for a week to conduct this massive battery of assessments to re-benchmark somebody to continue your programming, you've kind of overdone it, right? An ideal assessment environment is if you can just sprinkle the assessments in with the programming and make sure you're on the right track. And that's, that would allow that. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, it, it also switches the approach to physical training from being the best at those events to triage. Like what, what are my limitations, right? And so that's what assessment should do. It should highlight your limitations more so than your strengths. Um, and then allows individualization to a degree. Okay, so if, if there's a group of people within a platoon that just needs help with upper body pulling, well, we can focus on those things a little bit more. And it just, from a systemic point, to, to what I was saying earlier, like people are gonna utilize their coaches more. Um, people are going to, and what's gonna prevent, I think, theoretically, is people, you know, hiding the things that they suck at because they don't want to be embarrassed in front of their teams. And more importantly, creating a culture that's like, Hey, we have limitations. We have gaps. Let's get better at those things. And then, you know, we, we default to our, our default network mode or our default, you know, fitness mode is we have least the least limitations. And that's what it comes down to. Right. Like I was saying earlier, I've never done a max effort lift. I've never done a two mile run into target, but if I can't do prerequisite commando tasks, I will fail. And that's where I think we could, from a culture, say, okay, here's the 20 movements you have to do, A, pull up, A, whatever. And I'll even stratify it more. 
MOS or combat proximity band specific, much like the ACFT FT was talking about. So now not every pack clerk in the army is, is being told they have to max the deadlift for their job, but there's relative benchmarks, right? There's levels. And then if we want to incentivize it, because that's another thing I'm, I'm big on, we want to incentivize levels of fitness. We can now say, hey, you've achieved across all 20 movements or across all 15 tests, you've achieved a black belt status, right? Lean Six Sigma or pick a thing. And, and now they can do that. And what that then highlights to commanders is my company is pretty bad at vertical pressing. because so we do a bunch of horizontal. And then if he really wanted to, he could, he could target that, right? And maybe he doesn't have to because of their job. So I think it's just a more informed way to approach triage for fitness. I think the, I think the bands of like MOSs or positions or unit types thing is valuable, but I was just having this conversation with a friend. The easy button is to like categorize MOSs into different categories. And that's what we initially had with the ACFT, but there's, there's so much, there's so much variation within an MOS, depending on the kind of unit they're in. Right. So the, the example that comes easily to me, cause I come from an Intel background, right. I had 35 papas in my platoon and there, there are some 35 papas who work at NSA headquarters and do nothing but computer stuff. And that's it. And there, there are other guys in the exact same MOS who are attached to like ODAs or like going out with the infantry guys every day. And that's the same MOS, but wildly different physical demands of the job. And it starts to become a question of like, can we push authorities down to let and like, this is the hard part with conventional military that you can get away with in some smaller, leaner organizations. Like, can we let a division commander decide like what portions of his organization need to be at different standards? Or can we let a brigade commander decide what portions of his organization need to be at different standards? And that becomes a whole, again, going back to the, the IG kind of stuff, it becomes really hard, but. I agree. And, and I've had a good you know discussion with a friend of mine who's a brigade commander in the 173rd about some of this stuff. You know, at what level can he, can he, power those things down right you, you expect a company commander to take those soldiers in combat um, you would expect him to be able to say hey these are the fitness metrics guided by by folks like yourselves and, and folks in the HF team right an educated informed um, decision and saying like yeah my, my people are fit enough based off of our assessment um, and, I, and that is a hard thing I completely agree um, and you know if you even want to use other models, right? Like the language proficiency model that the army has, you know, one, one plus, you know, one, one, whatever, all the way up the chain. Like there's some, I think there's some value in there in terms of incentive. That's a whole nother ball of wax, right? Like we incentivize fitness levels. I think we'd change some things too. Again, space force model steps and all these other things, quantifiable things, but I think you'd have some gamification of the the whole thing. I, I don't know. Well, this is, we talk about this all the time at, at my work. Cause right. I, like, poor fitness comes at an actual financial cost to the organization. So it seems to make sense that there could be financial incentives for better fitness and performance on various assessments. But, and I know, I don't know if it's true today because these things change all the time with retention and recruiting and stuff, but fairly recently, if you arrived, if you like joined the Navy and arrived and on day one, you could pass a fitness test, they would give you $2,000, right? That was it. Like if you showed up already able to pass, that alleviates a burden on them. You're probably lower injury risk. You require less additional training, whatever. Here's $2,000. And I, this comes back to the fact that we seem to be okay with tweaking the test events, but not okay with tweaking the policy that goes along with it. 
And I really wish there was more open discussion of potential policy measures that could address some of these problems in a really constructive way. Well, this brings up a counter argument to the, because I've I, the counter argument basically of like, should the, if you have an organization, should the tip of the spear guys be fitter than the support guys? And it seems that everyone's, yes, they should. You divide it by MOS, like we're talking about. But my counter argument would be, Alex, I think to your point, do you miss out by giving those guys kind of a pass, so to speak? I know that not everybody should spend all day training to be like bigger, faster, stronger, but at the same time, maybe they should be held to the same standard because then you end up with an organization full of badasses versus an organization of kind of haves and haves not have nots. I know like you could argue that, you know, till, till the sun goes down, but for me, at least, I have always held organizations that I've been involved in, support folks and operational folks, to kind of the same imaginary standard because I don't really see a reason why just because you sit behind a computer all day, you should not be operating at maximal capacity from the perspective of health and wellness, not necessarily you know, crushing an Ironman on the weekend. But the opportunities are also kind of reversed, right? Because And it, it's different depending on what what the mission is but in a lot of cases the guys who are like the quote-unquote combat roles have the least opportunity to be really fit because they're getting stuck on these ridiculously long field exercises and things like that i know i've never i have never been in an armor brigade i've never seen what like abrams gunnery stuff is like but from my understanding it especially with like the high op tempo that's going on right now because of the eastern europe stuff you're like just command directive stuff is placing ridiculous constraints that are causing people to miss PT and not sleep a lot and not eat very well and all these things. And at the end of the day, you can't, you can't blame the individual for their lack of fitness if they've been put in a situation where it's almost impossible to maintain those things at all. So it's, it's a complicated scenario there too. And, and, you know, I'll take it a step further in saying that like in, in a unit like mine and in the special operations world, like you want extreme specialists and, and subject matter experts at their job. So if I want the best financial person in the world, there's going to be a trade-off with that. And that's back to that readiness talk that we use. I know it's semantics. Do they have a, a readiness level uh, that would support their job demands? Um, and then from there, they can become technical experts. Now, here's the other part, Drew, to, to talk about, um, well, no, it's Alex talking about different MOSs and where they're at, like even within the same MOS, but but and job demands, but rank specific, right? Let's take a bunch of 11 Bravos. The E9 in that battalion is probably the most beat up and broken, you would think, from years of doing the job. Um, can Are they ready enough to do the minimum task requirements? And then after that, their value is technical expertise, leadership, and experience. It's not their fitness. So almost like a bell curve, right? The initial entry 11 Bravo to a line company, maybe building up, but his technical stuff sucks, right? He, he barely knows how to use his weapon system. Middle of that bell curve, the, the E5s, E6s, E7s, the true technical experts, fitness and very, very good at their job. And that's going to wane as you get more into leadership roles. And I think uh, that's hard to do if some of those individuals are still trying to be in the fight and some of those guys are still trying to do it. Um, but that's a different discussion in terms of, of triage, right? The needs of that E9 are different than the needs of that E3. Um, but at what level do we allow that to be assessed? Do you cage that? Do you think you can cage that successfully by having the age brackets for a, a PT test? 
I don't know. I, so I'll, I'll tell you, we don't believe in the age thing. Um, but that's why we say, okay, hey, uh, expectations, red, yellow, green, right? Above average, below average, average, uh, given that certain population. And for a senior individual to be below average from a fitness standpoint, um, balanced out by, right, cross-validated by their marksmanship and their decision-making under in tactical settings. So I think back to the battery of tests and what you were saying, Drew, like I think uh, PT tests and assessments are one aspect in the complete tactical athlete picture. Um, looking at one data point is, is, I think, easy for us to do because we like it, but it has to be in, in the whole picture of the athlete. Well, this makes me think of back to a, a system that I used years ago to get at this exact thing of like, okay, if we don't want to throw an arbitrary standard up on the wall, and if we do have, in this case, an MOS and, and an age bracket that is so broad and we can't really encompass that with a single standard. So I had a PT test and I don't remember what events were on it, but I was using Z-scores for the population. And so basically it's a floating minimum and you're, you're compared to your peers. And I wonder if we could take, because again, I'm living in la-la land with this, if we could take that kind of 20 movement battery we talked about, and instead of saying like they do now at the ACFT, hey, you, your deadlift has to be this, your two mile has to be this. There's just a system that aggregates everybody's across MOS, across age, whatever. And so when you step up to the starting line to do those events, again, the technology would have to be good enough to do this, but you would have an idea of, okay, across the military, across the army, at this point in time, this is what the standard is. And if you fall below that, then you're below the standard, not because, you know, 10 years ago, we decided what the number of pushups was going to be, but because your peers, your archetype achieved this, this number. And I wonder if that's a way to do it versus getting hung up on just, like I said, throwing numbers on the wall. I'll, I'll offer two sides of that issue from the conventional army perspective here. Well, Z-scores are statistics, by the way. I should probably clarify that. It involves math. So, well, one, math is hard. But yeah. the, the two sides of the issue here are, so if you, if you carefully read what Congress directed the army to do with the ACFT, in there, like, in, I know everything changed this afternoon, but prior to that, what they directed the army to do um, was that they, they wanted a governance body, right? They wanted the army to create some kind of panel or team who would monitor how things are going with the fitness test and adjust it as necessary, right? So theoretically the force improves and the standard improves and things like that. And, and that sounds great. And it goes back to exactly what you were talking about. But I think the flip side is that was also exactly the intent when the OPAT was established, which I think is like five or seven years ago now. And how many, I, they established a, a pretty low threshold on that with the assumption that it will gradually increase over time. How many times have the scores, have the standards changed for the OPAT? They haven't, not even once. And I don't think there's even been a discussion of changing it because once you get something across the finish line, it's it's easier bureaucratically to just leave it the way it is. And that's why we had the APFT for what, 40 years? So I don't, I hope, I am hopeful that whatever that, that body is that manages this stuff going forward, that there is some adaptability to kind of see how it's going and make the necessary adjustments. But back to the, two different types of ships and how hard it is to turn it and whether the rudder will break off. I, I think a million person organization is big enough that the amount of inertia is such that it is very hard to make like year to year adjustments. But if you had, if, and again, I'm going back to my brilliant idea, which is Z scores and standard deviations and floating averages. The other interesting piece to this from an organizational standpoint 
you could see over time, has the average level of fitness gone up or down? And we can use that because you could feasibly, again, in my make-believe world, drill down to the individual task. You could use that to drive funding and resourcing. So like if we had a nutritional component folded into this, if we had a cognitive component, and again, instead of an arbitrary standard, you were compared to the living, breathing performance of your peers at any given point in time. If over a period of five to 10 years, I see, holy crap, my nutrition standard across the force is going down. Well, now I can drive fun. I mean, again, this is brilliant. There are no flaws in it whatsoever, um, but it's make-believe because I know that <laughs> this would never happen. <laughs> well, Drew, that's, that's kind of what, so I, you know, I did a whole thing on this for like uh, my Sergeant Major Academy thesis on, on a similar thing where it's both, it's an assessment that is, and then it, it's in the medical world, we say, you know, kind of diagnostic and therapeutic. Um, and so the, the recommendation that I made from that was a rolling battery of tests, a bank of movements that do that sort of thing. 10 months out of the year, we're also looking at, did that, and I said brigade, just because I picked that size element, did that brigade, did 80% of that brigade hit, hit 80% of the test? So 10 months out of the year. So it's an assessment of, of you know, both compliance and utilization. And then in, in the assessment term, it highlights limitations across the brigade. But it's also when you highlight those limitations and retest them again, those people are going to train for what they suck at. And so now it's therapeutic because it's a driving change at those things. And then I, I, you know, I hate to say it, but using the CrossFit open model of being able to stratify across your region, your everything else um, will drive change as well. Because you can say, hey, you were, again, you were in the bottom 20% on movements that were heavy. You're in the top 20% on things that were long distance. If we're talking about holistic health and fitness here, maybe you balance it out some. And, and is that a nutritional fault? Is it a recovery fault? Or is it just a training and programming fault? Now the coaches can then take action and say, hey, within my company, within my whatever, we address our limitations and then and address those other things. And it drives both soldiers to go see their H2F staff. Um, and then also the H2F staff has a very big say in these tests to do them the correct way. I think what that also does is it forces leaders to reckon with the decisions they're making that are entirely separate from fitness, how those things are impacting the health and fitness of their formation. There's a, there's a fantastic piece. It's several years old now. I think the guy's name is Matt Clark who wrote it, but it's a two-part piece he did titled the army has a readiness problem. And he did, he did some really simple analysis where he broke out like a normal training cycle for a brigade combat team and whether fitness was like getting better, kind of staying the same or getting worse based on like, are you in the field and how demanding is that exercise and how long it is, which, which points out very frustratingly that we tend to deploy our units at their lowest state of physical readiness. We, we specifically break people down the most right before deployment. And I think some kind of like rolling ongoing assessment where you're getting like relatively quick feedback, whether it's like a month or two after the fact would force leaders to kind of pay attention to that and say, Hey, like maybe the, the price we're paying of training this way is producing outcomes that are not what we were hoping we were getting. Well, Alex, I, I agree. And I also see it from another, another viewpoint here. Um, something that you have been posting about a lot recently, that's always blown my mind is the, you know, early morning PT block. Um, and then more importantly, I'll, I'll take it a step further. Why five days a week? Um, if we can do minimum effective training an hour, hour and a half, three to four days a week, we can buy back time on the other end and at certain times of day. And again, if a section 
highlights that they are above average on a lot of things, the incentive is now you don't have to spend as much time training with the group and you can now get better at your job, get better at things, or just buy that person back time. And so while it's not monetary or anything else, I think there could be some hidden incentives built in there saying, you know, like, like you guys were saying earlier, like you pass a PT test at initial entry training, cool, $2,000. Well, okay, you guys are passing all your tests and you're above the 80th percentile, 90th percentile in all given domains. Well, you're doing things on right on your own. I don't have to control you. Here's your free time back. Here's your other time back. And then, yeah, there's a lot of competing demands in the army from all the required training plus events. Um, now we can give them back some time and space because they've proven quantifiably through a broad spectrum of tests that they're ready to do their job. Do you think if you do that though, you have to, the downside of not meeting that standard has to be more severe because I see people fail the ACFT and, you know, two, three, four or five times, and there's really no downside to it. Cause I, I'm really drawn to this idea of kind of a floating PT concept where it's not, you know, strictly in the morning, it's not a particular amount of time, as long as you're meeting this, this standard, then you're okay. And we can kind of extrapolate best practices in terms of time management, et cetera, et cetera. But there has to, I think, be pretty significant downsides if you don't meet that standard because you're being given so much freedom on the other side, if you do meet the standard, I don't know. It could be, I could be meaning. I think there's, Two approaches to that. One is, again, transference of these tests to real job demands, right? Um, I, I'm going against a lot of Army and especially senior enlisted doctrine here when I say I don't care what my finance guy gets on a PT test. I really don't. <laughs> but that's another argument in and of itself. Um, but yes, if we're saying fitness levels and all these other things are prerequisites to collect your paycheck, then yes, I think there has to be some, some negative impact if you don't meet certain demands. Uh, but I, I don't, I'm also not a big fan of cookie cutter anything. So I don't know where that lies. I don't have a good answer for you. Can you imagine if you could not collect your paycheck until you passed the monthly PT test? <laughs> Dude, this would well, be... We do that. We do that with language, yeah. right? If you don't show proficiency in your language at serial cyclical tests, they take it like they take your stuff away. But that implies you get incentive pay for being a one, 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 one plus, one plus two, all the way up the chain. So I get that. I do. And I don't know how you scale that across the army. But to me, what we've been saying is you get paid for being a soldier, which implies a level of fitness. I'll offer two. And I got this as a history lesson. And we, it may be the same person Chris was referencing earlier. It's the, the 173rd commander who gave me this lesson a few months back. But where the, where the PT hours thing kind of emerged from because you go really far back in history army conducted pt at like 10 a.m which was a great time because you got breakfast first and rifle maintenance and then do pt and all that stuff but the the 6 30 to 8 window like the extra half hour addition and the protection of pt time and all that stuff was was a ranger regiment creation from my understanding based on a decision that like competing tasks were restricting time for physical training too much so they had to protect it right and I do worry that depending on the unit, and this definitely varies on unit culture, but we have a lot of units with a lot of culture problems. I worry that if you go too far towards the floating standard in the wrong environment, we'll just step on PT every day, right? Like so many things will get in the way of it. And I, the guy, one of the guys from 82nd just did the math a couple weeks ago. There's 365 days in the year. If you take out all the Saturdays and Sundays, you just lost hundred of those days. And if you take out like a relatively conservative, what, 20 days for 
field training, 20 days for CTC, all the holidays, extra Donzas, whatever, you're, you're probably PTing on less than half of the days of the year, just from like systemic things that get in the way of it. And if we start creating opportunities for leaders to be like, oh, it's flexible, whatever, we're going to do this other training instead, there is a huge risk there. So I get, I get the reason that leaders want to protect PT time. And they're weary of the the floating flexible thing for that reason. And yeah, I don't know if it was Mike. I don't know if the guy you're talking about, um, but if that was him, that yeah, we go way back. Like actually, we started you know building some of the raw stuff together. as my company commander. Um, we used to do races together, but really it was that. And when we started building out raw, it was also logistics. So if I have the gym that day for my speed and power stuff, and we're all flexible, you may come into competing demands for for some other things. Um, you know, I'll tell you within the, when this, within the soft enterprise, uh, other places, um, they do take, they have gone back to that model of, uh, when we're talking about true health of the force and, and pressure on the force and family, what we've tried to give guys back is, is time to take their kids to school, um, more sleep. And then you also typically do your most creative work and administrative work earlier in the morning after some aerobic work. So you know, let them do that aerobic stuff they want to, zero, eight to 10, 30 or 11, administrative work, those things, high creative demand, break the monotony, go PT, go eat, and then come back for the afternoon. So that is being done elsewhere with pretty good success, but it implies a more mature individual. And to Alex, what you were saying, the, the checks and balance there is quantifiable performance metrics. If you aren't meeting those preset limits, you don't get that flexibility. Um, so that's, you know, I could see it that way. Cause let's face it. Not a lot of people enforce those. Not a lot of people test the current tests. Um, so that's, that's where you could get into a real slippery slope. I'll tell you what too, my, my life is a little different now. I'm obviously full-time civilian at this point, Woo! but, but pretty cool policy, right? Uh, army civilians are authorized up to three hours a week for like health and fitness stuff during duty days. And we've, we've started being a little bit more serious in our team of actually doing that fairly consistently. And it's hard. Like if you just say you're going to do it sometime today, work will take over your whole day. You have to like put it on the calendar and actually execute it. But the best meetings we have had consistently, like by far the most productive, like brainstorming sessions and figuring out problems, conversations have happened at those workouts, like leave the office, get away from the PowerPoint, get away from the notebook and the computer and stuff and just go work out together. And that is where we've kind of like we, especially early on, we were all kind of getting to know each other. That's where like a lot of the relationship building happened. And then when it got into like, what are the big rocks? What are the most important things we need to get after and prioritize? Those conversations require like a little bit more fluidity and creativity. And that just flowed way better when we're kind of sweaty, picking things up and putting them down. I, just yeah, I, I completely agree. I picture you squatting and talking to your spotter about like, policy at the same time <laughs> that sounds like death, man i just can't can't get it yeah it sounds like what do you what do you think about leg tucks like it sounds <laughs> like the most boring workout of all time <laughs> hey, come on down that sounds awesome to me <laughs> yeah no, I, I think there's you know there's something to that though we, we talk about it from you know from a neuroscience perspective and, and evolutionary biology like there's something to that and times a day we work out and and is there <laughs> more harm than good in forcing people to give up sleep, get up early, leave their family, not eat correctly to get the PTN at those hours. And so, you know, just like anything, 
cost, uh, you know, risk reward and all those other things. Um, but here's another one back to the Space Force thing is can you go the completely autonomous trust everybody model based on their activity level or their fitness levels, right? If they're achieving a preset standard, do we have to control those things? Well, so I'm really interested this. to see how this Space Force thing goes. Like I want to see it work and I, I maybe I'm too trusting of humans here, but like, I think that if they're showing those things, then what that also buys back is, is time and space. And just some people flow better with a workout in the morning. I get it. Some people myself like to work out in the evening. Um, so instead of dictating that we now free up their bandwidth, to do what works for them. But my, so my thing about the space, cause I'm with you, I want to see it work. I love the tech piece of it, but they have already married that concept, and this is going to get into the weeds a little bit, but they've already married that concept to a vendor and to a product. And the speed of technology moves way faster. Know that. Yeah, it moves way faster than the speed of policy. So if, for example, I mean, we'll use like a BlackBerry. Is it, you know, if, if, if the BlackBerry was the fitness device that we married our PT test to, and the BlackBerry becomes obsolete in five years, but hey, we're still using that. I mean, cause I know what is it? They're doing like step count and all this other stuff, but like yeah, not thousand sure. steps a day was a metric that was made up by a Japanese company that invented the pedometer. Like it's not, there's no physiological, it's good to walk more, but to hang somebody's career on whether or not they have some arbitrary metric from some arbitrary software. I mean, we just saw this in the episode that we did with the guys that looked at force plates. Like if we eliminated a PT test, for the sake of using something like a force plate, we've already seen from research that the force plate was not predictive of anything that it was saying it was predictive of. So that's where I kind of struggle with that because I love the idea of eliminating some arbitrary tests for the sake of actual physiology, but I don't think the technology is robust enough to definitively say yes or no, the same way that like, did you lift 300 pounds or did you not? I think there's some, some stuff to be determined here. So I, I was not under the impression that they had already linked it to like a vendor and specific metrics or anything like that. My understanding was that their plan and this, they have the benefit of most of the jobs in the space force are not inherently the most physical, but there's no gravity. So my, my understanding of the plan was that they're going to like essentially use whatever metrics they're collecting, whatever those end up being to like guide interventions, right? Like if you fall below a certain threshold on a certain thing, you're going to get, pointed towards the appropriate program or like whatever it is to kind of address them. I just, I mean, we'll see how it goes. I think it's going to be a great test study in terms of like, we're going to do this live in an actual organizational bureaucratic setting and see how it goes. And I'm hopeful that the rest of the services can learn a ton. Uh, I've joked about this from my end. I see a lot of opportunity for myself in this, in that if you see me running up and down the sidewalks in Colorado Springs with like 14 watches up and down both arms. Don't ask any questions. There's a new market, but we'll figure that out when we get to it. That's what I'd be worried about, man. Like <laughs> I'd be worried about people gaming it and, and some other ends of that. But, you know, like I, I, I had this discussion, it was just timely with, you know, Drew Morgan, astronaut, colonel in the army right now, soon to transfer to Space Force, right? And, and jokingly said this to him, he's a longtime friend that, you know, people are going to be running around just, you know, swinging their Fitbits around or whatever it turns out to be to get points. Um, and I'd be afraid of that. But I, I would say, Drew, I, I don't know if there's a way, right, with all these workout softwares that let you input what you did and what you input, you know, each work, each day is now a data point, not just the Fitbit they wear. 
tested once a month or cyclically to, to prove they're not lying. And I think now you've got layers of cross-validation there, the daily activity from whatever thing, the entry of the workout that they say they're doing. So now we get fitness metrics and then validated by tests. And, you know, like I, we've all seen the trap of chasing VO2 maxes, chasing these other things that don't predict real world performance. We all get that. I know. Um, so I think if you have those layers, maybe you do have a better approach and, and can get around people running around, getting paid to run with people's Fitbits. Well, that's so I pulled this up as we were talking because I wanted to make sure that I did not like totally miss the mark on this. So this is my favorite. I love that they're called Guardians, first of all, in Space Force. So Fit Rankings is the group that they've worked with. And this is to basically make it competitive. So quote, powered by fit rankings technology, guardians will create individual profiles that connect to their wearable or app, providing in-platform fitness data for any activity and allowing data standardization, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So again, I kind of raised this question of like, who's deciding what wearables, are those wearables validated? We've all seen wearables that suck. Is this being used? I mean, not to go down a rabbit hole of the space force, but the idea, I think, Chris, your point of having this 20 metric rolling benchmark thing and then layering data on top of that so you can inform decision-making around what you're going to prioritize for your time and then freeing the soldiers up to spend the time the way that they choose, but having on the flip side standards that if you don't meet them, there is a penalty that is significant enough to drive behavior change. Because I don't if, you, if you're missing any one of those pieces, I think it kind of falls on its face. I, I do agree. And that's where I think... Um... You know, this is all theory on my end, right? And, and I think that it's it's conceptually be awesome. I don't know if it's implementable with humans across such a wide force. I, I get that. But at the same time, like, I'm hoping to see what Space Force does. And I do know that there are systems right now of, of those things where commanders aren't so focused on red, green, yellow metrics and numbers within a system that say their readiness is a certain level. They're focused on real-world performance and can let some of those other things go. That's hard to sell to Congress, right? Because there's a financial and, and real-world implication of what soldiers do. So I don't know how we do that. Um, you know, this getting back to the whole topic that we're getting onto assessments here, which, which all bears like, what are we even assessing and what, what are the outcomes, right? The objectives and, and key results that we're hoping to get. So, I mean, if we backwards plan from that, I think we could do that with some of this technology and some of these other things. So basically to wrap things up, we've decided that we need to do a rope climb, a run, and a squat. We need to wear Fitbits to track it. And the standard is going to float based on everybody else in your age group and MOS. Absolutely. In both real time and, and all time historical averages, because that's why I say it, because the shooting thing that we do in times of like low op tempo, you would expect PT and shooting to be higher. Um, and in times of high op tempo, real world usage, you would expect those things to be lower. So that's why that rolling average is important. But if you want to say, hey, compared to all time for the go getters, like to be the best of all time, uh, you can have both ends of that spectrum. Um, in there. And so let, let me go back to those other things, right? I know I threw those things out without context. Uh, predictors of performance that we have found um, within our success within some special operations pipeline are just grip strength, 
right? Mm -hmm. So that's why I say rope climb, not necessarily anything else. And, and you, you said deadlift. So I do agree. Um, and then just to Alex's point earlier about all cause mortality and everything else, just leg strength, foot speed, keep people from falling when they're old and keep them out of nursing homes because they can get up and move themselves to the bathroom. So there is, there is more than just me picking things arbitrarily, Drew. That would be so sick. If you could compare yourself to all time, I'm the fittest the army's ever, man, I could already imagine running into that dude at the freaking defect. Like I'm the fittest guy the army's ever seen. Well, here's why that's important, right? As, as we lose, as we lose, um, I'll say experience from combat and things like that. There are times when, when true fundamentals of marksmanship matter. There are times now when, when speed and technology enabled shooting matter. Um, and so when we're doing a overall analysis, you can see with iron sights where you're at. And so then if we're driving a training plan with shooting and it's like, Hey, with nods and lasers, I'm so freaking fast. But when we slow it down to BRM type needs, I slap my trigger, I do other things. And it drives a training plan and shooting much like I'm getting at with physical fitness. It, it highlights the limiter. We do have to let this wrap up pretty soon, but we didn't get to one topic. So I want to proactively invite Chris back for a future conversation about obstacle courses. Cause they, yeah. <laughs> if, if we want to get into stuff I'm really interested in, I want to know how relevant obstacle courses is. Cause I'm a, I'm a true believer, but it's not based on any evidence whatsoever. So I'd love to hear it from somebody who knows what they're talking about a little bit more. I'll summarize it a little bit. Our, our, I'll quote unquote, best performers, both in our courses and in quantified by multiple time best ranger winners have our best obstacle course time. Weird. <laughs>